Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, I'm your host, Sean Harris. This is episode 44 of Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Today's March 19th. I'm here with our guest, Conrad Kircher from Lebanon, Ohio. Conrad, Thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. You're welcome. Glad to be here. And even though you're from Lebanon, I should say, through the magic of technology, you're not, you're not actually in Lebanon, Ohio right now. No, but please don't disclose where I am because the office may think I'm around there. <laughs> very good. <laughs> so our topic today is sexual assault cases. And I know for a lot of our members, they probably assume that a sexual assault case is just kind of a subset of a personal injury case and you know some kind of general garden variety PI claim. I suspect that's not true, that there are some pretty important differences. Tell us about that. Yeah, they're vastly different. And, and you know the practitioner has to keep that in mind when dealing with the client. In a personal injury case, you're dealing almost entirely with physical injuries. Now, there may be a psychological component. You know, maybe the driver of the car gets nervous when approaching intersections and is afraid to drive, and, and those, those are legitimate issues. But overwhelmingly, the personal injury cases deal with physical injuries. Well, in a sexual assault case, it's not that way. The, the injuries are overwhelmingly psychological. And, you know, they're based on deep-rooted violations of, of the person's psyche. It's, it's often from a betrayal of, of trust or exploitation of a position of authority. And those amplify the effects on, on psychological damages. So, you know, sometimes in a personal injury case, you'll hear, the, you'll hear the injured person say, you know, this isn't about money. Well, most of the times it, it is about money. But if a sexual assault survivor says that, you can pretty darn well sure bet that it's that's that she or he is correct. It's not about the money. It's about validation because you know, these survivors are trying to overcome shame and guilt and lack of self-esteem. And the money they get from a settlement or an award is simply an indication or a representation of that validation. And that's so important to them. Mm. Talk to us about the causes of action in a civil case. I, I take it these are primarily intentional torts? Yes. It, it's typically a battery. A battery is the offensive physical touching without consent. We, we often use the term assault in a civil context. It's really not the right term to use, but more people understand what, what assault means than battery. So battery is, is the primary cause of action. There may also be a claim for intentional affliction of emotional distress, depending on how the perpetrator then then deals with the the aftermath of the battery. You know, I always look for th- those are those are the claims we make against the perpetrator. Now, I'm always looking for third party defendants. Maybe it is maybe this was a teacher, and so is there a claim against the school system under Title IX? or some other cause of action. If this was a man, was the wife aware of what was going on and failed to prevent it? And would there be a negligence claim against the, the spouse? 
uh, youth organizations. So there may be negligence causes of action against third parties as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the hope there is to be able to find insurance coverage to be able to compensate the plaintiff. Yeah, that, that's, that's, always, that's always a benefit, of course, for compensation. But, you know, I'll tell you that it does help the survivor to know that the perpetrator is paying something if there's not insurance. Again, that's part of the validation process. But you're right. If, if there's no insurance, sometimes the cases are just not financially viable. That's a good point. I, I suppose probably regardless of the amount, from the victim's perspective, to have the perpetrator pay something as an admission or, as you say, validation, is probably as important or more important than the recovery to them. Yeah, you know, I've had several cases where the perpetrator was unable to pay a lump sum, so they had to pay monthly checks. And a few of my clients have really, really liked that because they know that every month when that perpetrator writes that check, the perpetrator's thinking about what he did to the survivor, and the survivor loves that control. But I've also had others say, no, I don't, I don't want anything more to do with him. I want him you know, to pay me a lump sum, whatever that is, and then I want to be done with him. So it, you know, they're, they're two different mentalities. Sure. You know, while we're talking about damages, I, I just wanted to pick your brain on the subject of punitive damages and whether you allege those in these cases. And the reason I ask, I was talking with a friend of mine um, at Winter Convention who, who raised this idea that, gosh, if you, even though we're all kind of taught, you know, in law school to make every claim for as, as much damages as you can, the downside in Ohio to, you know, to pursuing punitive damages is, number one, you know it's going to be automatically bifurcated for the for at least for discovery and, and and for trial. And if you don't plead them, then you may be able to at least nibble around the edges of some otherwise wrongful or punitive conduct as part of the compensatory trial. Yeah, I I still do not have a firm opinion. I, I always allege punitive damages, but if, if there's a possibility of insurance coverage, I also make sure that there's an alternative cause of action for negligence that would trigger the insurance coverage. I, I just had a trial about a month ago where I did obtain punitive damages. The, the trial was bifurcated, and I think it worked to my advantage in that case that the case was bifurcated because when the jury went back to deliberate the first time on compensatories, you know, they weren't aware that there was going to be a second bite at the apple. So I think mm. they, were angry, they were angry enough at the perpetrator that their compensatory damage award was probably influenced by, by their disgust with him. Mm -hmm. So they came back with a compensatory award, and then the judge had to say, well, you're not done yet. You've got round two. You've got a, yeah, you've got round two. And the defense attorney and I, both decided we were not going to present any additional evidence. We were not even going to argue. We were just going to have the jury read. We were just going to have the judge read the instructions on punitives and send the, the jury back because it was late in the day. It was on Valentine's Day, <laughs> and we did not want to risk them being any anger. Their faces when they when they heard that their job wasn't done yet were very disappointed. Yeah. So they went back and they came back with a fifty thousand dollar punitive damage award and an award of attorney's fees. The problem is that under 
tort reform, there's the law that says that punitive damages cannot exceed 10% of the net worth of the individual. And that 50000 may be reduced to zero. Yeah, that's probably a, a good strategic decision on your part not to hold the jury there longer on Valentine's Day lest they try and find a way to award punitive damages against you, the lawyer. <laughs> that's what we were concerned about. <laughs> talk, talk to us, Conrad, about experts uh, and how, what kinds of experts you use and what are uh, necessary in, in cases like this. The most important expert is, is a psychologist who is very familiar with, with sexual abuse effects. Because a challenge in, this, in a case like this is having a jury understand what all these psychological damages mean. You know, in, in, a, in a personal injury case, it's easy to prove a broken bone or a herniated disc. You've got x-rays. A person can explain what they can't do. But in a personal injury case, when you get to pain, you, know, you always have to have your client be very explicit about their pain. They can't just say, well, I hurt all the time. They have to give examples that get that across to the jury. Well, it's similar in a sexual assault case where you're, you've got to have the jury understand what these psychological damages are. So a psychologist who can explain the violation of trust and, and the depression that a survivor goes through when when they question whether it was their own fault, when they feel shame from what happened, when they can't tell people what happened to them. You know, the the daily effects of the depression. They, they these survivors sometimes can't get out of bed. They they go on binges of substance abuse. They self harm. And then a good expert will project to a jury what the survivor is going to face at different stages of their life. For example, when they start to have intimate relationships, you know, healthy, intimate, loving relationships, the, the complications that this survivor is going to have and the, and the hurdles that this survivor is going to have trying to be intimate and loving. Or in the employment context, let's say it was a female survivor who was abused by a male authority figure perpetrator. Well, when that girl goes to get a job and she's got a male boss, she's going to have struggles. She's going to have hurdles in, in developing a good working relationship with that supervisor. When, when the person has children, the, the hypervigilance that the parent is going to go through, the, the parent survivor when raising their own children. So a psychological expert is extremely important and they can do there's, a, there's a, a lot of valid testing that a psychologist can do to, to try to have some objective findings to support their opinions because some jurors are going to be skeptical about psychological mumbo-jumbo as they see it. So if the psych, psychological expert can do the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or trauma scales, Milan, and, and so forth, these are tests that the survivor takes, and a lot of them are multiple choice or matching words and stuff. And they are there. There are triggers that can identify when a person is malingering or over exaggerating. So there are guardrails for these types of tests, but they help a psychologist testify as to what these uh, damages are. Other so that's the most important expert. Other 
experts. If it's a school case, you're going to need someone with an educational expertise who can identify what red flags the school system had about this teacher before he offended. It's a youth organization like the Boy Scouts. You may want to have a, you know, if it happened in a campground, a, a camping expert. And so there are standard of care experts that, that are also important. And finally, one, one that should not be overlooked is an economist who can testify about lost earning capacity. I had a great case a few years ago where my client was a female in high school who wanted to be a chef and full scholarship to a culinary college. But in high school, she was exploited sexually by her culinary teacher. And after that, she could no longer be in a kitchen with male authority figures. So she quit. She got out of, out of, being wanting to be a chef, and she, after a nervous breakdown, she got into nursing. She became a nursing assistant. So my economist projected what she would have made through her working lifetime as a chef compared to what she's going to make through her working lifetime as a nursing assistant. And you know, the differential was, was quite significant and helped us to get that case settled. And I take it these the psychologist experts, you're not relying necessarily on a treating psychologist. You're seeking out and hiring your own. I usually hire my own forensic evaluator expert witness. And and there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, they're they're more accustomed to testifying in trial. But also, I don't want to harm the therapeutic relationship between my client and her treating psychologist because once a treating psychologist becomes a witness in a in a in a court case uh there's there's some damage to that therapeutic relationship because the psychologist may have to say some things that the client shouldn't hear it's a good point so as we're sitting here today in in 2019 looking forward if you could wave a magic wand and align ohio law with how it should be or or would be more supportive for sexual assault survivors and their claims. How would you do that? There are a couple areas that really need to improve. And and first one is statutes of limitations. In 2006, we we were successful in passing a new law, which made some improvement. You know, the the survivor, a, a, a child who has suffered sexual abuse, has until the age of 30 to bring claims. And the reason that it's 12 years rather than two for a personal injury case, is that it takes a long, long time for a survivor of child sex abuse to to come to grips with what happened to them. But it still needs to be longer. Many other states have longer statutes of limitations or have even passed windows where there is a one- or two-year period during which any survivor of sexual abuse can bring a lawsuit and not be barred by statutes of limitations. So that's one there, there is one specific area where I think, and, and I'm going to get started on, on this effort with some clients, and that is to have the statute of limitations for a civil claim told during the period that a criminal prosecution is ongoing. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, prosecutors do not want victims of sex cases to be filing civil lawsuits while the criminal case is going on. Because that's free discovery to the to the defendant, and it and it makes the victim look like they just want money. 
and that can be used against them in the criminal prosecution. And so victims, advocates, and prosecutors are very, very poor at advising survivors that they have civil claims. And often survivors have come to me after the criminal prosecution and said, well, now I want to do a civil case. And I say, I'm sorry, it's, it's too late. If you were an adult, there's a one-year statute on a battery claim. So other states have passed that. And then finally, the third thing is damages caps on cases arising out of sexual assaults. There is a bill pending. It's the second time it's been introduced to remove damages caps from civil claims arising out of rape. If, if you're telling a, a sexual assault survivor that their pain and suffering, their general damages, their non-economic damages, are limited to $350,000 for a lifetime of effects, that is extremely insulting, and it's, it's re-victimizing. It's not the validation that these people need. It's re-victimizing. So that, that bill definitely needs to pass. Especially, as you say, when compared to a, an injury claim where you might have lots of medical bills, which are unlimited and are the primary driver, and where you're talking about psychological injuries, by definition, those are capped, and those are your primary damages. Exactly. Exactly. Conrad, this is fascinating. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. And thank you to all our listeners out there. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out civillyspeaking.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. And we'll see you the next time here on Civilly Speaking.